this episode of the How We Interview podcast, I spent some time talking to Nicole Fernandez-Valle. She's a lead talent acquisition partner at Royal Caribbean. Spent a lot of time talking about the current state of the labor market, talking about the importance of candidate experience, her feelings on AI, how to eliminate bias in the interview process. Nicole is incredibly well-connected. She posts a lot of amazing content on LinkedIn. I encourage you to give her a follow, and I really enjoyed our conversation. So from there, we'll get into it. Nicole, thank you for joining today on the How We Interview podcast. I would love to start off our discussion today. Would you just give me, giving us a 30,000 foot view of your background? Yeah, absolutely. And thanks so much for having me. So my name is Nicole and I've been in recruiting for the past five or six years at this point. I, much like many people, fell into recruiting straight out of college, but it's been a really fun ride and I've had the opportunity to recruit and everything from startups to really large legacy companies to big tech. And throughout that time, I've also had the opportunity to be on the candidate side after experiencing two layoffs. And so now I am back in the recruiting space, but also do a lot of work to try and demystify the recruiting process to talk to folks about how to job hunt as a recruiter, now having seen both sides of the coin. Yeah, that's fantastic. Thank you for that. I'd love to dive into and I'm sorry you had to go through that. And I'm, like I said, living that now, we would love to hear about your feelings of, um, yourself as a recruiter and then yourself as being the candidate and how being a candidate so recently shapes how you manage yourself as a recruiter. Yeah, absolutely. Going through two rounds of layoffs and having to be a candidate again is really eye-opening because you get reminded of the ghosting, the auto-rejection emails, getting any sort of rejections, like really just the worst, ickiest parts of the process. And so I think that it really just gives you empathy when you go back to the other side of remembering how I felt. I know there were even times where in the first layoff, I was ghosted after getting an offer. And so it's really going through some of the toughest things gives you a fresh perspective coming back on the recruiting side. And I think also we're seeing a completely different market now than we did even a few years ago. The first layoff I was a part of was in 2020. And at that point, even though I had less experience, I found it to be a lot easier to find roles. There wasn't this issue with any sort of supply and demand where there was really a small level positions for the group of people that were laid off. Or now in this past round, it was a completely different scenario where tapping into my network, applying to jobs, things that I was doing in the past didn't really work out in the same way. And so you had to leverage a lot different strategies this round around. And really, like I said, going back into the recruiting role when I did land that job gave me a really just fresh level of empathy having just come off the candidate market. Yeah. You never wish this on anybody, right? But you could argue, and I, I definitely feel this myself, that going through layoffs, whether it's you're the one administering them or you're a part of a layoff, it in the longer run probably makes you a better talent acquisition practitioner. Would you agree with that? It does. And that's a little bit of a hot take because to your point, I would really never wish layoffs on anyone. And I think that luckily I was in a position where both times I had some sort of a heads up. I had a little bit of, of time to plan. And so the time that I was laid off, I was really able to focus completely all of my energy on networking, on building up and my network of connections where other folks are really not in that situation. And especially now where a lot of people are experiencing long-term job loss, where it's not, hey, I'm laid off and I'm looking for a job for a month or two. It's 
six, seven, eight a year, I've seen as many. So it's definitely a different feeling. But I agree, any recruiter that spends even five minutes as a candidate, I think will come out the other side with a lot more empathy. Yeah, 100%. I agree. I'd like to shift gears here a little bit. You mentioned you work for lots of different size organizations, different industry as well. I I would love to hear your thoughts on how big tech approaches hiring and interviewing versus a startup world versus a mid-sized company. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that there are at the baseline similar ideas in the sense that at the end of the day, people want and hiring teams want to bring on people that they're excited about, that they would love to work with, and that they feel are really going to elevate the role that they're hiring into. But I think that the way that people get there is very different. I would say that when I was working in big tech, it's very highly metricized. The process feels a lot different because there's so many people at the company. A lot of the times resources get tapped in a different way. So it's really common. It happened to me when I was going through my own interview process there to not even interview with your team. It's just a panel of skilled interviewers that are testing for very specific predefined qualities and you're just hitting and executing on those and then you'll get to meet your team later on and so the process feels a lot different whereas when I was working and recruiting for the more startup or even the the more legacy size company it was you're going to be speaking directly to your hiring manager that's the person who's going to be really deciding whether or not you are fit for that specific team. So I think the process for somebody to enter a role is a little bit different, just depending on the scale and size of the company. Yeah, you alluded to this bar raiser concept, right? And I think what that does a really good job of, and some folks who are listening may be like, oh, I know exactly what that is. Other folks take it as a challenge to figure out who the bar raiser was (laughs) in their round. But I'd like to talk about that a little bit because it gets at this notion of disseminating between those people who happen to interview well and those people who are actually the best fit for the job. But it's easy to get swept away by somebody who really is good at interviewing, but may not have the skills to do the role. Can you talk a little bit about that bar raiser concept? Or I know a lot of other organizations have adopted as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I think the bar raiser concept is an interesting one. I think can be applied to pretty much any organization just in a different capacity. But for people who are hearing this for the first time, a bar raiser is somebody who is a part of the interview process that typically is not the hiring manager or the hiring team that sort of objectively makes sure that throughout the interview process, the person that's being chosen is hitting the qualities that were already predefined as to what the best fit is for the role. So things like biases or a lot of the times hiring managers will have the this, this similar to me bias where they'll really just end up hiring the person who they like the most instead of who has the qualities and the competencies that are going to be the best fit for the role. That bar raiser, that third party objective person who is highly trained in interviewing is going to be a part of these panels to make sure that to exactly what you were saying, the best fit for the role based on these competencies is going to be chosen to eliminate other biases. Yeah, that that's fantastic. And I, I think it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. Your mileage may vary. I think that model works very good for certain kinds of organizations, especially, I love what you said about the like-me hiring. It's very easy to do. And what happens, you end up with these massive teams that have one set of skills, 
really one set of personality traits and they all act and work and sound the same. And if you've ever been in that situation, it's spooky, really, to be honest with you. So I do think it's really good to avoid those sorts of situations and really get to the root of who was the best fit. That's awesome. Yeah. You've yeah. met biases, be it intentional. Uh, look, hopefully there's never intentional bias or unintentional bias. I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how the organizations you worked for in the past go about removing any unintentional bias not only from a Canada-facing perspective, whether it be job posts or what your employer branding materials look like, but also during the interview process itself. Yeah, absolutely. The job process and the candidate process as a whole has so many places where we're on uh, like hidden and unconscious bias can kind of creep in. I would say from the job description itself, there's a lot that we can do that I've seen these organizations do, whether it's running job descriptions through a gender decoder to make sure that there's not gendered language that's really off-putting to certain individuals applying for roles, making sure that as early as a job description or in an interview selection process, we're allowing for accommodations and making sure that we're allowing everybody from every population to make sure they're being accommodated for any part of the interview process that is needed. And then when it comes to resumes, which is really the first time that we as recruiters or hiring teams are coming across, I've seen a lot of orgs basically have software that blacks out names, addresses, any sort of information that might be identifying that might cause any sort of unconscious bias so that it's not really even an option. But I think that the meat of this and where a lot of these unconscious biases tend to come up is interviewing. And so I'm a really big advocate for having to ensure that these unconscious biases aren't creeping in because it's a thing that is natural as human beings especially that's similar to me one that we were chatting about earlier it's easy to say oh i have a peloton and i'm talking to aaron also has a peloton that's so cool and you just start getting excited about somebody that you're naturally similar to but realistically that may not be the right person for the role. And so making sure that before you even start the interview process, everybody is trained and knows what these potential biases are. So when it happens, they can hopefully have a flag to see it kicking in. Having some third party option, whether it's a bar raiser, whether it's the potential for a review, if anybody feels like biases are coming through the process, that's then another lever that we used to be able to pull in big tech to have reviews of interview processes. So if there's a third party that can double check that, I would say are some ways to make sure that we're not letting these biases creep in. And we keep going back to that idea of sticking to the core competencies that are important for the role and grading everybody against the same criteria. Yeah. And I think that's so well said. And the whole nature of unintentional bias is you, you want to assume people have the most positive intent. And if they don't know they're doing it, I think it's hard to constructively draw their attention to the fact, did you realize that you have this kind of adverse impact in all of your recruiting funnels? This is something we should probably address and make it not punitive, but more educational. Because um, like I said, maybe they don't know. And I think that's a really good point. Everybody hopefully has the best of intent. And there's a lot of tools out there. I've the blind sourcing or the blind resume is also a big favor of mine as well. It's impossible to have any bias if you just really don't have a ton of game film or data on that candidate. And I think in some extreme cases, that's absolutely necessary. Yeah. I even, I've even seen some blind sourcing take out universities also, which I'm a big fan of because there's a lot more ways than you think where these unconscious bias can creep in. 
Yeah. Yeah. I've had hiring managers say, I want somebody from an Ivy League school. I want yep. somebody who's worked for one of the big four consulting firms. I want somebody within 30 miles of campus. There's bias comes in a lot of different shapes and sizes for sure. Shifting gears yet again, there's been a, it's crazy to me, but there's been so much chatter about AI just in life in general. But I think across industries, there's probably been more discussion around how AI impacts recruiting than a lot of other industries. I'd love to hear your thoughts on A, what you're seeing in your day-to-day life for AI right now, and then B, what a longer-term future looks like of a good practitioner harnessing the power of AI to make them better recruiters. Absolutely. And I think AI is prevalent in the recruiting process, but really not to the scale that most people think, and it's really not being used in the way that people think. There seems to be this notion that's being perpetuated on every social media platform that there are these AI bots that are taking over ATSs that are knocking candidates out, which really just doesn't happen. I'm Like I said, I've worked for startups, I've worked at big tech, and you would think these are going to be the ones that are going to have these AI bots, and I have yet to see one. Really where AI sometimes comes to the process is ways like AI using technology to take off names from processes. There's ways that I know in some of the big tech companies, we won't use it to screen a resume. It's still going to be a person at the end of the day who's going to take a look at your resume, look at the qualifications. But what the applicant tracking system really is a huge digital filing cabinet. And so we use things like fill look through that digital filing cabinet and AI can help with that. If we say, I know previously I was recruiting for product designers. I say, hey, I'm, I want to run a search for product designers with this specific tech or at these targeted industries. Run this. AI can help disseminate some of that information. But at the end of the day, all they're going to do is help you find information that goes back to a recruiter that is going to be the one to take a look at resumes, interviews, anything that you share with us from a candidate perspective and decide how to use that information. Yeah, we'll say it again for the people in the back. AI is not bouncing your application. That is not not a thing. And I think too, a lot of other technologies get thrown into the AI bucket. Keyword matching, a lot of what you're talking about for resume parsing is just keyword matching or a more aggressive form of keyword matching is machine learning, where systems will learn based on your keyword matching, what types of candidate profiles have worked best in the past. That is definitely not AI. I, I think from a recruiting standpoint as well, I, I think it's made us more effective. I feel like the people in our world that are going to be able to harness the power of this, I, I don't think AI is going to replace recruiting. It's not our jobs or not in danger because of AI. But I think the people that do learn how to harness the power of AI will be much more adept at their jobs. I think from a sourcing perspective, you mentioned Boolean strings. I'm old enough to have been in this business long enough where we that's how we source. We use Boolean strings on Google and, and that's how we found folks. I think AI can make us much more effective at unearthing talent. That is not the same talent that your peers are looking for, your coworkers, other peer companies, everybody else in the industry and help you really find I won't get into passive versus active talent, but but talent that may not be at the top of everybody else's list. Yeah. And this is yeah, this is something that I use day to day that I think, to your point, helps me find more candidates. 
when we use Boolean strings, a lot of the times we're learning a new role as it comes to us. Unless we've recruited for that role before, we're learning and we're not subject matter experts on every role that we recruit for. And so we can use AI, like I've used it all the time to say, okay, take the product designer example. I'm recruiting for product designers. Tell me what other titles I can use so that I can look for folks who are in this industry. I'm like, perfect. Okay, I can go for UX designers. I can go for, I can look at UX research. I can, I now have this wider range of titles and Boolean strings that I can use to help us and empower us find more candidates. And so to your point, I think that it's really just the power is in the yielder. If we use it as a tool, then it's really just helping us find more talent. Absolutely. And I think this market won't always be like it is today, right? We probably as practitioners don't have to lean on AI as much now because we have so much inflow of organic candidate traffic. Like coming out of this, it's going to be important that we have our arms wrapped around because we've both been in this long enough where this market will shift and it'll shift so much quicker than we ever think it will. And then we'll find ourselves in a situation where we're really having to hustle for talent versus kind of this embarrassment of riches that that a lot of us are seeing right now. Yeah, I, I think it's funny. It's almost like the housing market where previously you like staged a house. It was gorgeous. It was like so welcoming for people to come in because companies had to do so much work to bring and attract talent. And now it's okay. This is the house. This is all my stuff. I haven't even cleaned in two weeks, but if you want to buy it, that's up to you. And that's great, but that, that's really only going to last for, for so long before companies are going to have to go back to the model of attracting talent. Yeah, 100%. I, that's, that's a wonderful analogy. I may steal that, but I will totally quote you. This episode of How We Interview is brought to you by Reembi. You understand the importance of maximizing your team's efficiency. Instead of having your recruiters or coordinators spend time with expense reports to reimburse candidates for interview expenses, automate the process with Reembi. Reembi streamlines the reimbursement process, ensuring your candidates receive their reimbursement quickly and accurately. Your team can focus on other essential aspects of the hiring process by eliminating reimbursement tasks from their workload. Automating reimbursements is a significant improvement to the candidate experience. No more dealing with spreadsheets, attaching receipts to emails, or waiting weeks to receive the payout. With Reembi, the reimbursement payout to your candidates is sent the same day expenses are approved. To learn more about how Reembi can help your team, visit Reembi.com. That's Reembi, R-E-I-M-B-I.com. Since you've been both on the, the recruiting side of the equation and the candidate side, if you could wave a magic wand, what would you fix about recruiting and hiring? Not even germane to your own organization, just what you're seeing in the industry overall. Yeah. I think that we talk a lot about candidate experience. We were even chatting before this call about how it was so important, this big buzzword previously when we were in that time where companies had to attract. And it's somehow gone away. We haven't heard about it as much now. There's all these influx of candidates. Uh, I, But I do think that while there's a lot of steps in candidate experience, there's a lot of things that people can be doing at the baseline. It's keeping an open line of communication and giving updates in a reasonable time. That's it. I think that's something that I gets taken for granted of just how important it is. And I think that when I talk to candidates and people who are in the job search, their biggest frustration is getting ghosted, not getting updates, or getting rejection letters in a way not timely manner. And I know that happened to me. I think that I got a rejection the other day for something I applied to a year ago, which is hilarious now, but can really be weighing on you if you're a candidate going through this. And so I think a lot of it is 
using data and metrics in a good way to help empower recruiters and hiring teams, because I think that's the piece that doesn't always get talked about. Using these metrics to help us say, hey, we feel like two or three days is a good response rate to keep candidate experience high. We're getting past that. What can we do to help improve the process and also hold our hiring teams to it? Because a lot of the times recruiters, it's their main job. We can keep a pulse on our own activities, but there is this entire other piece of people who ultimately are decision makers that sometimes delay the process because they have their own jobs. And so making sure that we're continuing this collaboration to all all get our own metrics to make sure that from a candidate experience and communication perspective, that's solid. Because I think that's the basis of any good candidate experience. Yeah. If anybody tells you, to anybody that's listening, being a recruiter is easy. I think Nicole and I will tell you that's not the case. And you, you find yourself constantly wedged between your stakeholders, your business partners. They usually have tighter titles well in excess of, of ours. And then you've got candidates. And a lot of times those expectations don't meet up in the middle. I have had hiring managers, senior vice presidents, executive C-suite type folks who are like, I just want to leave this role open just to see who comes <laughs> in. Yeah. For months on end. I think as a recruiting professional, it's really important, not to your detriment, but we really have to exercise our voice. Look, we need to advocate for our candidates and the kind of experience that that we're providing. I was reading something the other day. It is a study of 5,000 jobs, and I don't know how many candidates were attached to those roles, and less than 60% of those jobs were actually dispositioned. So the jobs may still be posted or not, but they 60% of them did not disposition their candidates. And that's that's just basic requisition hygiene. And, and I think I, I know when times where we're super busy and we've got all this incoming traffic, it's hard to keep your eye on the ball on every single candidate you have. But every one of those candidates is a person and all those people have hopes and wants and dreams. And I think at the end of the day, we're all in this because we're in the people business. We want to find opportunity. We want to help people, help them grow their careers. And so- I I appreciate that public service announcement, Nicole. I think that's awesome. That's awesome. We'll get t-shirts made. And so think about one thing you could fix, the opposite side of that coin. What are you really excited about in this space? What gives you hope? What are you looking to see in the next two to three years in the talent acquisition space? Yeah. In the next two or three years, I, I really hope that companies decide to really continue going back and making candidate experience a priority, regardless of how the market is. I, I think that it's important. And I think that as time has gone on, I've seen the HR and recruiting function be more thought of as strategic partners to the business. Because I think in past times, HR just gets seen as this, okay, this is something that we have to do rather than strategic functions. And so I'm excited to continue candidate experience to leverage tools, whether it's in the IAI space or not. I think that's just going to help the recruiters get better, get faster, and have a more a better pulse on the candidate market. And then I think the third thing that I'm excited about is I think that a lot of companies are now seeing the value of using things like employer branding, really focusing on DEI initiatives, and really just figuring out what their value proposition is as part of a talent marketing strategy, because that's a piece that I don't really see get talked about a lot in recruiting. And I've seen an uptick of employers focusing on the talent marketing piece to, to showcase their culture, their diversity, and, and what makes them special. And I think that'll also 
help with the candidate experience if a candidate goes into it and understands what they're getting into because at the end of the day both parties should be interviewing each other and making sure that it's a best yeah i mean down cycles are for building building we're definitely in a down cycle i, I agree 100 i feel like the employers that come out of this with their very clear idea what their candidate experience is going to be what their talent brand is and have their process kicked and tied those are the ones are going to be able to capitalize once we really have to start working harder to uh, attract talent I guess last question, I would love to hear because there's a lot of folks that we talked about in our pre-call tech and talent have been over impacted by some of the downturns we're seeing in the labor market right now. I know the labor data looks good, but there are some subsets of the labor market that are really struggling for work. To those people that have been out of work for six, 12 months who have put in hundreds and hundreds of applications that we talked about, they may not even be getting you know them. I would love to hear any thoughts you have from a job seeker perspective, how they can make themselves a more desirable candidate and just what they need to do to push through this time. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm coming off this pretty freshly. I was part of layoffs in tech in November of last year. And I can tell you it was a completely different job market than the layoffs I was a part of in 2020, where you could just apply and recruiters would call you back and the process would move reasonably quickly. It's really a, a different market now. Some things that, that come to mind, and this was my guiding North Star as a candidate, and I think others found this helpful too, figure out whenever you're going through any sort of job loss, career transition, figure out what are the things that are most important to you. So let's say I'm not taking a job less than X salary. I'm only taking a job that's remote or hybrid. What I'm only taking a job with these values. Whatever that criteria list is for you, figure out what that looks like month to month. So for me, initially, what I was targeting on month one looked a little different than what I was targeting month three and was going to look a little bit different than what I was targeting month six. And I didn't get there, but I think that helps you have a really clear vision of what jobs you're really going to target, what jobs you're not. Because I have seen folks apply to hundreds and hundreds where I think that maybe by figuring out what that criteria list looked like for you, you could have just spent a, more time on targeted applications as opposed to blasting out so many. And I think that it also opens up opportunities. There's a lot of folks that I know, and I, I love about myself in this camp, that like was all for remote work or for hybrid work. And it's in, given the nature of the job market right now, depending on where you are in your job search, it's important to make that decision for yourself as to what's really important. And also think when you're thinking about a long-term job search, is it more important to you to take a role that meets most of your criteria or the criteria that you're okay with at that time, as opposed to holding out for X amount of time for that dream role? There, I think there are times for dream roles and there are times where it's the job security might weigh out a little bit more. And for a lot of folks who are going through layoffs at this time, I leave that as a consideration, but I do think there are things that we can do to get us closer to those dream roles, to make us better candidates as a whole. I think number one, if you're somebody who's in a jo long-term job search, who has done hundreds of applications, I would consider if the application route is the best way. There are tons of different ways to end up in a career path whether it's networking and finding somewhere that's in that hidden job market space, whether it's leaning on coffee chats and networking to get referrals, whether it's reaching back out to past companies and seeing if there are any opportunities. There's a lot of different ways to end up in a career. Maybe it's even really building up your LinkedIn presence or your social media presence to see if you can get headhunted or somebody else can actively 
proactively find you. I think there's a lot of different ways to find a job. And so if you're just going one way, which most people go the application route and it's not working, I would implore you to consider other routes, even though they might feel a little bit less comfortable, a little bit more in that gray space, because oftentimes there are a lot of people getting jobs different ways and maybe one of those routes might work better for you. Yeah, that that's amazing counsel. I, I think it'd be very easy to the days or weeks go by and you're shooting off three or four applications a day and everyone that you either A, don't hear back from or B, uh, you do and it's a declination. Your, your confidence erodes little by little, kind of shaking up that process a little bit saying, okay, if I'm applying for this role, I'm guessing it reports to this person on LinkedIn. I'm just going to send them a note. Uh, people have been doing it to you and I for years. I, I think it's time to flip that and be like, there is something to that. And having managed employer referral programs for 15 years, I know for a fact that those people that come in through the employer referral channel are far more likely to get a role than somebody who's just applying off the street with no game film or background on. So I agree with that 100%. I think that's super valuable. And and I hope candidates or people that are looking for work, they're listening to this, they, they find some value in that. You really take that to heart. Yeah. I, I have a, another recruiter friend who does a lot of career coaching and her big mantra is like success loves speed. And so a lot of it is even going back to what we were chatting about with hiring managers, where sometimes the reason why the process just drags out so long is because they're not investing 100% of their effort and one shot. And so it's okay, maybe I'll interview some candidates, maybe I'll take some feedback, but it drags on. She, she coaches folks in the same way for the job search process where you, if you put in truly, let's say even, I think she does like six weeks programs. If six weeks, if you put in 110% time where you wake up, at eight, you have your regular nine to five almost as a job and you're trying your different strategies, you're tracking your metrics, almost like being your own data analyst and saying, this is what works. This is what doesn't work. Um, a, a lot of the times that is where some of the success comes from because if you're doing a lot of targeted outreach, usually that tends to be a little bit more successful than to your point, the three or four in a day or in a week. Yeah. And, and if you're not seeing any progress, then it's really hard to, to shake up what you're doing, to really flip your strategy on its head. But that's really what needs to happen because if you're competing with 100, 200, 300 people are doing the same thing you are, how are you going to set yourself apart? And I know there's so much content out there about what your resume should look like and what your cover letter should look like and should you or should you not send a thank you note and should you connect with your interviewer before or after on LinkedIn? There's a whole lot of other things that are tied up in this. But at the end of the day, it all comes down to setting yourself apart from your competition. It does. And I don't want to take away from how absolutely difficult and grueling this market is because it is. And that's, I think, half the battle is giving yourself grace to say, this is really hard and this is probably going to suck. I don't think that anybody has gone through the job search process and said, this is my favorite thing to do because it brings up a lot of uncomfortable feelings about rejection, about putting yourself out there. If maybe you're not somebody who loves having communication and, and open networking with people. That's not your favorite thing. It brings about a lot of really tough options. But to, to what you were saying earlier, 
taking a look at your own process, really diving deep, dissecting to say, okay, what's happened, what's worked, what hasn't worked, because maybe you have gotten some success in the interviews or in getting your resume selected, but you get stopped at interviewing. That's your clue to say, this is what I need to work on. Uh, I think that just dissecting your own process and even just being your own sort of career coach and saying, I know myself, I can look at this almost as data points, I think also helps with the job search a little bit because it's more of like I said, a, a data search as opposed to any sort of individual rejections, which most of the time have nothing to do with the candidate. Most of the time, to your point, people are leaving roles open for hundreds of days and dispositioning them later, and they're getting rejections that it hasn't been looked at. There was an internal candidate in play. And so there are going to be rejections as part of the process, but doing what you can to differentiate yourself and figuring out which path works for you typically is going to be key for landing that next role. Yeah. I mean, it's almost scientific in a way, right? Yeah. Uh, and then the more organized you are and the more consistent you are. I, I, I have some friends that are also looking and they'll go in these waves of high productivity looking for jobs, a bunch of interviews, nothing will come to pass. Then there'll be a down cycle. And I think I would suggest and I would counsel that you want more of a straighter line of effort and investment in what you're trying to do to land your next thing. If you're Scrooge McDuck and you're sitting on a pile of cash and you can ride this out until the next up cycle. Do it. Yeah. But absolutely do it. But if you're like, look, I need to get to work. I, I I think to your point, Nicole, and it's so well said, this is your job now. This is what you need to do. And the folks that are interviewing with you, they may not know the work that goes into that, but you're going to put yourself in front of folks that may, you may not get in front of otherwise. Yeah. And I even think about like my own experience and I've had three different roles now or four now that have come with four different ways. Uh, the first was going to a college career fair meeting a bunch of different people and coming in for my first job at Royal Caribbean, having no clue what I was even interviewing for, but just saying, I'm going to take the shot. The second one post layoffs was writing a LinkedIn post saying, hey, this is what happened. This is what my experience is. And somebody, a complete stranger on the internet, tagging me in the post of my future, of my future manager and getting the job that way third was being really consistent about getting myself out there on social media and being headhunted for a big tech. And then this last one was continuously networking throughout this whole time and connecting, staying connected with folks from my first employer and coming back after another round of layoffs. And so I, I think that the story in all of this is it's never going to be the same for every person. There's going to be a person who tells you that they got five jobs with five applications on the internet. There's going to be my story, which is varied. And so I think that just goes back to your path is going to be different from everyone else. And you have to figure out what works for you. Yeah, 100%. This has been great. I feel like you and I could do this for like hours on end. So I, I will give you back your time. I, but I, I really appreciate you, Nicole, talking about your experience, not only from a recruiting standpoint, because you see tens of thousands of applicants come through and, and being what best practices look like there, but also your your story as, a, as an applicant as well. And, and so I appreciate balancing those two and giving that perspective. It's been an awesome conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. It was great meeting you. I think that there's so much recruiting advice out there. And a lot of the times, the simplest answer usually is the one that works out. People can talk to your ear off about formatting keywords, all of this. But the, at the end of the day, the folks who get jobs are the ones who demonstrate their experience, showcase what value they're going to provide to the company, and are just always networking, connecting to make sure they're staying open to those new opportunities. Yeah, that, that is awesome. If people want to connect with you, what's the best way to do it? 
Yeah, I would say I post a ton of content on LinkedIn. And so that's definitely the best way to keep in touch with me. Awesome. Great. This is the How We Interview podcast. And this is Nicole. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the How We Interview podcast brought to you by Riembi. Head to our website at howweinterview.com to find the show notes and links mentioned in this episode. While you're there, subscribe to the podcast through your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Leaving us a rating and review also helps us reach more listeners interested in learning from other talent acquisition professionals.